This is the Talk Editions podcast. I've always wanted to shrink myself into a size of a tiny grain of rice and bring a bucket inside of my ear to get the water out. This season, we at Talk Ensemble asked some of our most recent collaborators to interview someone of their own choosing. Today, we'll hear from composer and performer Devin Osamu Tip speaking with composer, show performer, and sound artist Chaturi Shimizu. All right. All right. Shaped by sonic sensitivity from a young age, Pittsburgh-based composer, performer, and visual artist Devin Osamu Tip creates unorthodox musical environments from ostensibly incompatible realms. His music draws influence from his Japanese and Eastern European roots. His experiences as a jeweler and painter, improvisations with plants, and his studies of gagaku and hogaku in Japan and the U.S. His work focuses on rhythmic and timbral transmutation of cyclical materials, ranging from the orchestral to string basses prepared with honey stirrers to concerti for traditional Japanese instruments. His compositions have been performed in the U.S., Europe, Australia, China, and Japan. Tak had the pleasure of working with Devin earlier this year when we were in residence at the University of Pittsburgh, where he's currently pursuing a doctorate in composition. Devin invited Chaturi Shimizu to speak with him for today's episode, and he does a great job of introducing him, so I'll let them take it from here. Hello, everybody. I am Devin Osamu Tip, today guest hosting for Talk Editions podcast, coming to you live from Pittsburgh. Today's guest is Chaturi Shimizu, who is joining us from Dresden, Germany. Chaturi Shimizu is a Dresden-based composer, show performer, and sound artist who constructs his work from a wide range of mediums concerning time identities in sound, ranging from orchestral work to sound installations. All of his works engage in repetitive patterns of sound motifs, which aims for the slightest change in the pattern to act as an accent and is described as a flared uh, infotainment playground by Meerlich Dresden. As the first prize winner of the 2016 Malta International Composition Competition, Shimizu's works have been performed and exhibited throughout Australia, Europe, Asia, and the US by acclaimed ensembles and musicians such as Auditi Focal, Idejiro Honjo, Ensemble Linnea, Multilateral, Mayumi Miyata, Mizen, Mivos Quartet, the Shanghai Philharmonic Orchestra, Sound Factory Orchestra, uh, the list goes on. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's all welcome Chaturi. How's it going over there in, uh, what is it? It must be nighttime over there, right? Hi, yeah, it's uh, 10 o'clock at night and I'm wide, uh, wide awake right now. Have you always been a, a night owl? I remember when we were hanging out, you you often mm-hmm. work late into the nights. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to fix that right now. But uh, yeah, I used to just work until the sun comes out. Mm-hmm. So how uh, how is quarantine life treating you? Uh, otherwise, well, I think I've been overall well and, um, you know, staying positive and productive. Of course, there are ups and downs, but overall, you know, my, my, I'm introverted. So <laughs> my introverted side isn't too upset about having to stay home and grow vegetables. 
I, I wanted to ask you about that because um, before quarantine, I didn't really know you to be the gardening type. <laughs> yeah, well, um, as you've known me for a couple of years, I've been on the go for most of the time. Right. So, I mean, I, it, it, it wouldn't be an exaggeration if I said that I was either on an overnight bus or a flight every week. So now that I have to, you know, stay home most of my time, I thought, what can I do? And growing vegetables, growing what I eat was one thing that came up to my mind. Hmm. So on the subject of like quarantine life, I guess, um, I've noticed that it really hasn't stopped you from composing at all. And you've um, like maintained to do a, uh, a lot of collaborations. Like recently mm -hmm. you had your new piece for electric guitar and video, Tamago mm -hmm. Infinity. So um, has quarantine changed the way you've been composing and collaborating or has it stayed the same mm -hmm. or somewhere in between? Well, yeah. Um, I gotta say that over these years of traveling, I've pretty much adjusted my composition process um, so that I can compose in any location, not in my room. Places like the cafe or on the train or, you know, in the airport, etc. So, yeah, um, I got to say that the quarantine has changed how I compose and work 180 degrees. And uh, now I need to say that it can sometimes be challenging to work on multiple compositions on the same desk. I mean, do you have a similar thing like this? Yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah, if I work on my desk um, on one work for the next piece, I have to work in a library or a cafe to a different place uh, or else the next piece will encompass the same uh, or at least similar atmosphere as the one before. That's interesting. Do you think this has anything to do with the way, because you have a very specific, very interesting approach to time identity and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. music in general. Um, would you say that those time identities are also influenced by the spaces that you're working in? Um, to be honest, the, the time identities are quite separate. They are just an explanation of how I compose, how I notate the time flows in music. I see, I see. So, yeah, it's quite separate. Okay. But don't you have, like, a similar thing when, when you have to compose one piece in your room and then for your next piece, um, you have to go outside and kind of get a fresh air? or else the piece is going to be like a continuation of what you've been composing for the past two months. Hmm. I'm going to have to give that a shot. Though I, I will confess, I have been alternating between three different desks where I am sometimes. Mm -hmm. so, but maybe I need to make it an even more extreme change. <laughs> Anywho, so I'd like to go back back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, do you have an earliest sound or musical memory Sure. Um, so this might be more of a soundscape than a specific sound or a music memory. But, uh, you know, in, in the summer in Japan, there are cicadas just screaming everywhere you go, right? It's the greatest. And, yeah. So this is something that you can't really find in many other parts of the world. But yeah, um, I don't even remember how old I was, but I remember this really loud not in a disturbing way, but a really loud chorus of cicadas just creating this amazing layers of soundscape. 
Yeah, it's really, it's quite magical, isn't it? <laughs> so, you uh, originally you started off as a pianist, right? <laughs> so you were playing piano and you went to school for it. Um, but I'm curious, when did you first um, discover Sho and Gagaku? Because um, if I remember correctly, <laughs> it's not exactly, it wouldn't have been the most common thing to see like even after 2015 with the government change, mm-hmm. include Wagaki in school curricula. So can you talk to us mm. a little bit about that journey? Sure, sure. So first, um, I, yeah, I started piano when I was four years old and I was more into piano. Well, I was perhaps not into piano um, uh, to be specific, but um, I was more of a pianist until when I was, let's say, 13. Um, After receiving my performance diploma at 12, something just snapped like a rubber band stretched too far. And Mm. after that, I haven't really taken piano seriously too much in my life. And sure, I like, you know, playing freely, like improvising, but I just don't see the need for me to play classical music. Like, why me? Why do I have to? I see. Why, Why... why me? And um, regarding Gagaku, um, I actually don't remember the very first time that I encountered Gagaku music, but I knew of Gagaku music and the show from a very early age. Mm-hmm. And um, I must say that it was actually in my undergraduate years in Tokyo when I was really fascinated by the music and the time flow of Gagaku. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, I had the privilege of studying under Mayumi Miyata, mm. who is known as a pioneer of bringing the show into the new music world. So that really opened up my interest into gagaku music. And that's the time when I really dived far into, um, you know, the gagaku's time identity and the show in contemporary music. I see. So this was when you were doing your undergraduate at Kunitachi or before? Or? Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, prior to doing that, did you have uh, any experience playing wind instruments or had it been mostly pia- uh, piano? It was mostly piano. I've played clarinet in my middle school band, but uh, I, I wasn't a really good student. <laughs> let's, let's just put it that way. Like, yeah, I was very... Yeah, I wasn't really dedicated um, in uh, in music classes in schools. All of my music <laughs> teachers hated me, and I hated them and stuff. So, oh dear. Well, maybe we maybe we should cut that part out, out of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, when you dug when you dug your heels in and started doing gagaku, though. Um, was that about the same time where you also started working with um, computer music or was your interest in that somewhat separate from the gagaku? Um, it was very separate. Um, so I enrolled at Kunitachi as a computer music major. Oh, okay. And um, yeah, I don't really see composition and computer music too differently. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just, you know, an expression in a medium of sound. Right. So, yeah, I wanted to do that. So I, um, applied to Kunitachi. I got in and I actually didn't know that Mayumi Miyata was there until 
a close friend of mine. Um, he was a exchange student from Denmark. Um, he was really into show, and he kind of pulled me into this Gagaku class. Oh, and yeah, so it's it's all. Um, I, I owe him a lot, actually. <laughs> that's that's really uh, that's really something. Yeah. So when you so prior to enrolling, you, uh, just just to clarify, you you had no real. If it wasn't for this fellow, you might not have gone and done so and gagaku. Um, not to this extent, for sure. Like he was the one who just, you know, talked to me about how magical gagaku is. At first, I didn't really have too much interest in the Japanese traditional music. Right. Um, I was more into the the contemporary music scenes in Germany and in France and in the United States and so on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he really gave me this opportunity to uh, look into the country that I, look into the cultures of the country that I was born in. I see, I see. So, uh, just for the, the viewers who may not be familiar, Gagaku is, is a traditional court orchestral music of Japan with a history that runs back to the 8th century and has a very uh, rich and interesting musical culture that is actually quite... Uh, cosmopolitan and complicated and and uh well i wanted to ask you chatori um mm. in the the original like so the way we learn gagaku like when mm -hmm. i played hichiriki or when you learn so is through soga um and um i'm wondering um when you first started learning gagaku and everything were you surprised at the difference between the transmission of musical material in gagaku versus your time as a pianist mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and did that have any long-lasting effects on your compositional process <laughs> yeah well definitely um the well learning gagaku really uh changed my views of what music is and how we should notate music um so uh yeah as as you know um gagaku music doesn't have a tempo indication right and we do have a time signature but it's nothing com uh it's it's very different from a western uh conventional scores time signature like 4/4 okay. yeah but uh that final beat at the end of a cycle is a very long mm. fourth beat. Yeah, the fluctuation of the time and stuff. So uh, if I haven't really learned gagaku, then I probably would have just notated the show or other non, let's say, non-Western instrument in parentheses mm. um, in the same way as um, other European instruments. So in the conventional five-line uh, notation system. Right, right. Mm. So, but I feel like that notation system can't, uh, can't really encompass every musical cultures. It's actually a very limited way of notating things. I agree, I agree. Mm. So I'm, is it fair to assume that after you start like 
Yurakunitachi, you're doing your, uh, you're studying gagaku and computer music. Was this about the time you also came up with your approach to time, the, the metronomic, the chronometric and idiomatic time, or does that come later? Yeah, so uh, during my undergraduate years, I've uh, actually been going to a lot of noise shows in Tokyo and experiencing uh, noise improvisations. And yeah, experiencing those uh, improvs, uh, being in that space really made me think of the correlation between the diverse time flows of music mm. and notation. Mm. But uh, during that time period of life, I still didn't have the vocabularies and the knowledge to explain my concept of different time flows. Mm. Mm. But uh, after digging deeper into compositions, uh, in this case, compositions of European instruments on five-line Western notation system, and simultaneously exploring the time flow of Japanese traditional music with Mayumi Miyata, yeah. um, I really started to see clear differences that haven't really been theorized in any fields of musicology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm not a musicologist, but I thought, you know, perhaps theorizing the different time identities that I have encountered from a compositional slash notational perspective was possible. I also got to give credit to Mark andre uh, He's my sensei <laughs> uh -huh. because uh, he was the one who pushed me to pursue this idea of time identity. Mm. And I'm borrowing a lot of his concepts, uh, not in the exact same ways as this theory, but uh, yeah, I hope he doesn't mind too much that I'm changing some of his um, um, vocabularies, some of some of his uh, definitions of time identities into my own ways. But yeah, so yeah. I've theorized these three time identities: metronomic, chronometric, and idiomatic time identity. So, can you um, tell us just a little bit more? Um, so, what you mean by chrono uh, metronomic, chronometric, and idiomatic? Mm -hmm. um, because those three words sure. of themselves mean different uh, things to different people and depending on context. Yes, so exactly. Yeah. Could you, uh, could you unpack those a little bit for us? Yes. So the metronomical time identity is used many times in the post-Baroque uh, conventional Western notation system. Uh, one, one very important factor is that there is a tempo indication and a time signature. Right. So when an orchestra uh, plays together, there's a conductor and the conductor counts the rhythm when it's 4-4. Four, four. He counts and he or she counts in uh, the specified tempo, uh, one, two, three, four, and the orchestra follows. Right. Uh, that's the metronomic time identity um, where I think if we're classically trained, I believe that most of us are uh very used to this type of metronomic uh music right right mm. uh the chronometric time identity is the one i usually give an example from gagaku instruments uh specifically used in the context of new music uh especially the show so as you know in gagaku music the time fluctuates yeah yeah um quite rapidly over the course of an entire or quite dramatically over the course of an entire suite. Yes. And 
as we said, um, in a Gagaku score, there isn't a tempo indication. And right. also we do have the counting system, or perhaps we can call it the time signature for simplicity purposes. Right. Uh, this is absolutely not the equivalent of the metronomic time signature of the Western music. Yeah. So, yeah, for, for time's sake, I just need to oversimplify this, but the show is an instrument where a performer can breathe in and breathe out, like what we usually do without conscious effort. Yeah, like, and, a, uh, like a harmonica, because it's a free mm -hmm. instrument. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this is how the show uh, plays music. And in the traditional performance techniques that we know of in the 21st century, the show adds fluctuation in the time parameter and the intensity parameter with the performer's cycle of the breath. And there's this term called kigae that you also know. Uh, in English, it's, it, it, it can be defined as the change of breath from either inhale to exhale or from exhale to inhale. Mm. And the beats or the counts leading up to the kigae uh, elongates or fluctuates, uh, which is just not possible to depict in the conventional Western notation system. So, uh, so I usually bring up Nakishi's example of his work, Musique for Show and Violoncello. I think this was published in 1988, I believe. Um, where he gives a rough estimate of the time it takes to perform a phrase in seconds. Right. Um, so the show player isn't bound to the metronomical time that the performer possibly isn't used to. Um, the show is a show being a chord instrument is also absolutely not the instrument to play fast melodical passages because mm -hmm. um, of the relatively inflexible fingerings and the structure of the instrument too. Right. So I always stress that to preserve um, gagaku instruments, especially the show, um, what makes a show a show, I feel that the best way to use, the best way to compose is to use the chronometric time notation and give freedom to the performer of mm -hmm. the tempo fluctuation to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. then, and then finally we have idiomatic time right yes the idiomatic time identity yeah. the, the last of the three uh, this one is actually a very peculiar one um and like the chronometric time identity it's very i think it's very difficult to notate it mm -hmm. in the conventional western notation system so um how should i explain this um, imagine a piano in a in a small concert hall mm -hmm. Uh, if you hit the key, any key, the sound will come out and it slowly degrades into silence, right. into nothingness. The reverberation slowly degrades into nothingness. But see, the speed of the degradation uh, into silence varies if there are audiences in the hall, uh, what the audience are wearing, if there is a carpet on the floor, how, how high the ceiling is, how big the hall is. All these external factors decide the speed of the decline of the sound produced from the piano. So I view that a composition composed using this idiomatic time identity um, gives flexibility to the performers and 
plays with these external factors of the performance environment. I see. So, <clears throat> would it be fair to say, though, that there is some overlap between the chronometric time and the idiomatic time? So, for example, when you mentioned mm -hmm. Higai, um, it could also, like, that could also be impacted by um, the weather, or if you're mm -hmm. like me today and you have a bit of a runny nose. Uh, <laughs> though, of course, that might be uh, an extenuating circumstance, but um, would, would you say that the two overlap or like, is there, a, is there a moment where one becomes the other and vice versa? Um, well, I believe that all of the time identities overlap with each other to a certain extent. Right. Um, yeah. But the idiomatic time identity, I view the idiomatic time identity um, more uh, towards listening to the silence or in between the sounds. Uh, so would it, be, would it be fair to use the, um, the M word, ma? Ma, yeah. yeah let, me, let me give you one example of a piece. Yeah. So do you know this composer, uh, Michio Kitazume? Uh, I'm not familiar with this composer. He is a retired professor. He used to teach in Kunitachi. Okay. And he's now retired. And I know his one of his pieces, Distances, Zwei, for Clavier. It's a piano solo piece. And um, it, I think it's a very good example of um, what I call an idiomatic time identity. Um, it plays with the distances between a chord and another, a note to the next note. I see. And how the reverberation degrades in between them. But then, you know, the piece will sound completely different played in a big concert hall or in a very small room with carpets on the ground. Right, right. So the focus is on the, the ma, the focus is on the in-between. While in the chronometric time identity, the focus is more on the, on the sound, the fluctuation of the sound, the time flow. Interesting. That's nifty. I need a second to process that. <laughs> <laughs> well, on a, on a similar and related topic, um, I wanted to ask you, um, you're, um, you're one of these people who I'm very jealous of and that you um, are quite good with languages and you speak, uh, I think you've uh, four of them, five if you include Osaka-ben. <laughs> um, and I was wondering um, if studying the language, studying different languages and acquiring over the years um, has had an impact on how you think about time or maybe not necessarily time, but flow mm -hmm, might mm -hmm. be a better word. I was wondering if you could chat mm -hmm. about that. Some. Yeah, I, uh, I strongly believe so. I, I really believe that um, if you speak multiple languages, then um, it really changes how you view time flow and how you view mu the musical time flow. Um, and I really think that the languages that we speak really shape who we are and how we think too. So my mother tongue is Japanese. And in this language, I find a lot of silence in between words and sentences. So I'm sure that Devin, you have experiences 
um, talking in Japanese with yeah. you know Japanese natives. Um, so in this language, um, you know, we have a lot of silences in between words and sentences. Yeah. Whereas in English, especially in the United States, um, <laughs> silent moments in between conversations are considered awkward. Yeah. And I've I've seen people just avoid this by, by all means. They're very uncomfortable with having uh, silences in their conversation. Yeah. So yes, lear learning a language is like learning a culture, and it uh, it really opens a new door to the time flow of you know just conversations or lifestyles or even in compositions. Well, especially. Um perspective like perspective and thought because um if you compare japanese to english or german mm -hmm. uh sentence structure is uh for lack of a better for uh, time's sake it's usually the reverse mm -hmm. like for example when you introduce yourself in the states or in german you'll probably start with yourself and then you end with where mm -hmm. you're affiliated but in japan it's in japanese you're going to start with the affiliation and then mm -hmm. you end with yourself or go mm. from big to small yeah um, yeah yeah and i i want i've one i've wondered if there was um like does do you has that kind of thinking had subconsciously or otherwise have you ever thought about that in relation to your music hmm. for that i have to think about it um more because that's a very strong cultural aspect of um, these two cultures that we're talking about. Yeah. And um, in the arts, uh, many times in artistic expressions, we're actually trying to break out of our cultures. Um, we're trying very hard to break out of the norm, break out of the usual cultures. Right, right. So... I think that I haven't conscious or at least I haven't found any anywhere in my works where these uh, cultures in Japanese from big to small and in uh, uh, European or American cultures, small to big. I don't find them specifically in my work, but I think these things are to be found by somebody else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll just yeah stop it there. It might um, it's a it's a big question and a big and a big thing. Mm -hmm. um, so in addition to all the, uh, your compositions, of course, I know you're also an active improviser and you've also done a lot of installation work. Um, and I was wondering um, because show is an instrument which has a very particular role mm -hmm. in a very particular setting, which is mm -hmm. now, of course, obviously one of many arenas where we can uh, appear and participate. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk about um, your work as an improviser, as a show player, and your role as an improviser, as in a, uh, a um, computer, uh, computer musician, for, mm -hmm. uh, if you will. Mm. So, first of all, um, I actually don't really see myself as a professional show player. I think it would be very offensive to the professional show players if I, uh, if I call myself a 
show player. But uh, I really like this instrument, and um, I'm more of a researcher of this instrument in the context of new music.、Mm-hmm. But、uh, being able to play this instrument and、uh, being able to improvise on this instrument, collaborate with other musicians,、um, yeah. Looking back, I can definitely see the dots that I have connected with, you know, just everything. I think、um, not just my、uh, computer music or installations or、um, my show, but I think everything, every experience, good or bad, every action. I think that everything has an effect on what we are today. If、uh, if I remember correctly, you also have done some installation work with、uh, plants as well, right? Yeah. How how did that come about? So I'm I think that you're talking about my work bonsai modulation,、uh, where I put recorded where I recorded the vibrations of a plant. And mix it down to a human hearing range. Right.、Um, yeah. So the, Is、uh, that the work you're talking about?、Mm-hmm. I do believe so.、Um, so for some so, reason, I might have、mm-hmm. imagined you did an installation piece in New York with plants, but I could be wrong. Yes, exactly.、Um, so the track, the the sound of the plant bioacoustics, the track is called bonsai modulation. Okay. And I used that track.、Um, Inside of the installation, somewhere close. So yeah, you're you're right about that.、Um, so yeah, what what's the question again? <laughs>、uh, so、um, how how did it come about that you started messing around with、uh, plants in terms of、uh, like musical compositions?、Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, the installation version that was in New York was that an interactive piece or is it just one where the、um, Where like audience members interacted with the plant, or was it just the the audio track itself?、Um, it was a live amplification of the plants, which was uh, uh, brought down to a hu- human hearing range, which is twenty、okay. to twenty thousand hertz. And、um, it wasn't supposed to be an interactive piece.、Um, it was just a sound installation where people can just come in, sit down, and.、Uh, Just listen to the four channels、uh, speakers vibrating the plant bioacoustics. But uh, um, because the floor was it, it it was a second floor, and the floor was made of old wood, so it kind of became an interactive piece in a sense that when people came into the installations, the floor creaked, which the sound and the vibrations were all picked up by the. Uh, contact microphones,、Hopefully. so people could hear all of the footsteps around. But yeah, that was cool. I mean, <laughs> this、uh, this mixed track bonsai modulation. It's、um, actually one of the tracks in my O, which was released last month. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to asking you about that in a minute.、Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, let's just head straight into it.、Um, So your album all has three tracks on it, correct? There's bonsai、mm-hmm. modulation, there's Nini Spelunking, and、mm-hmm. help me with the third one. Ah,、uh, uh, Shinkaigyo. Shinkaigyo. So can you tell us a little bit about、um, Shinkaigyo and then and then Nini Spelunking, which we'll, we will end with? Sure.、Um, Shinkaigyo 
was composed when I was still at Kunitachi in Tokyo. And um, I had this chance to uh, get on a ship to go to Fukuoka from Tokyo. Now, if you drive a car or if you use the bullet train, the Shinkansen, um, it's not going to take a long time. I mean, it can take a day and that's it. But on the ship, it was moving very, very slowly. It was a very, I, I bought the cheapest tickets uh-huh. and it took me like four days, four full days to reach Fukuoka on the boat. So um, I brought some uh, hydrophones, uh, which I borrowed from my university professor. Um, And um, during these four days, I accumulated a lot of uh, sounds of the sea, the underwater Mm. of the Pacific Ocean. And later, when I went back to Tokyo, I uh, mixed the sound together with two instruments, two compositions of mine for bass clarinet and for timpani, mm. and made an electric tra- electronic tr- track as Shinkaigo. What prompted you to take the, the trip in the first place? And uh, so, the, hmm. what does the, the title mean, just out of curiosity? So Shinkaigo is a Japanese word for deep sea fish. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I've always been fascinated with the deep sea fish in the Mariana Trench. And, you know, in the Pacific Ocean, the Mariana Trench uh, lies in between, you know, Japan and the Philippines. So, yeah, I just wanted to uh, create some work purely from my imaginations. Mm. Mm. Uh, I, I think that segues very well into Mimi Spelunking. Um which is, uh, and I, I would try and attempt to tell the, the, the story of the piece, but you do it so much better than, well, I would, uh, please, could you share, could you share with us the inspiration for it? Cause it's so, it's so great. It's very weird. I, I must say. I think it's fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Mimi Spelunking, um, it was composed in 2019 last year during in residency at Visby International Center for Composers on Gotland Island in Sweden. And um, one of the earliest memories that I have of myself is having this enormous fear of water going into my ears uh, in a swimming pool. Right. And um, as a child, I imagined my ears as caves. And I thought there must be a chamber in the inner year where water can enter and never come out again. So I've always wanted to shrink myself into a size of a tiny grain of rice and bring a bucket inside of my ear to get the water out. Thus the title, Mimi, which means ear in Japanese and spelunking, spelunking as in caving. Yeah. Yeah, so... You know that fear of water entering my ears has somewhat faded over the over the years, but the memory of the swimming pool being scared in the swimming pool is so vivid for me that I kind of wanted to revisit this and to compose a piece about it. I I remember having a similar experience, like the first time you get water in your ear, 
mm-hmm. and it, it won't come out. And it's kind mm-hmm. of it is kind of a traumatic experience. Yes, exactly. And when you're a child, you're like, okay, where did it go? Did it go into my brain? Is it still stuck there? So I was just horrified about this idea of water entering my my ears. I definitely felt a similar sensation as a kid. I think. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Chaturi, thank you so much for your time today and talking mm-hmm. with us. Um, thank you for having me. And uh, for everybody else, we'll listen to Mimi Spelunking for Shaw and Viola. And uh, from Pittsburgh and Dresden, Prost and cheers. That was Devin Osamu Tip speaking with Chaturi Shimizu. Check out this episode's show notes to learn more about Chaturi and Devon. This episode was produced by Devon Osama Tip in collaboration with Talk Ensemble and edited by Marina Kifferstein. The audio at the beginning of this episode was an excerpt from Mimi Spelunking by Chaturi Shimizu. Stay tuned to hear the entire work performed by Naoyuki Manabe on show and Tai Chihiro on viola. Thanks for listening!